4. Again, this is our series, Overcoming Fear and Anxiety. A little uh, review here. Um, we've taken, taken our time and kind of laying a foundation for this uh, particular subject, looking at that broader area of emotion in general and how people experience emotion, uh, talking about the importance of our thoughts and the way that we interpret our circumstances uh, and how that affects our emotional state and our decisions. Uh, we look briefly at the example of Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate model when it comes to handling our emotions. And so we've looked at some of those, uh, some of those passages, and uh, again, we'll, we'll kind, of re- kind of dipping back into those things as we go along. Uh, but then we, then we moved on to examine in more detail, uh, really looking at fear initially, and then we're going to, the, the very last sort of lesson we'll do will be specifically on anxiety, which I just sort of view as um, like a, uh, a, a, a cousin, if you will, like a cousin to fear. There's a lot of overlap, and yet worry and anxiety and, and sinful concern in the scripture, there's some unique features about that. Um, in what it is, and even how to approach it and address it. So we'll, we're just starting sort of with fear initially, and then we'll move on and talk about uh, anxiety. So we said of fear that it's not necessarily a bad or sinful thing. Uh, there is the fear of the Lord, which is commanded, uh, which we will have for eternity, folks. We will, if you go to those New Covenant passages uh, in, the, in the major prophets, you'll find that one of the traits that we'll have as believers in eternity is that we will never lose a fear of the Lord. So certainly a, a good thing. It was certainly a thing that Adam and Eve had when they were created and something that they uh, forfeited and forgot and set aside um, when, they, when they disobeyed and, and sinned. And so that's an important part, a fear of danger, uh, which can be said, uh, which, which we said can be useful as a protective device. Uh, again, this is just, you know, like uh, don't step off the sidewalk in front of a moving car, sort of like there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a good element of, of fear in that sense, very practical ways to use that, uh, normal forms of concern and caution and prudence. But then we said there are those uh, sinful forms and kinds and expressions of fear. There's cowardice and timidity, uh, panic with the absence of self-control. So just sort of a fear where the emotion sort of dominates and we're not really, in, we're not controlling anything, right? It's just, it's, we're not thinking about our thoughts. We're not thinking about our, our conduct and the decisions we're making. Um, there is a fear of man, which again, we could take, we could just go off on that. I mean, the love, our love of praise and approval Huge issue in Scripture. Um, we really won't have the time to, to dive into that much, uh, but that is one form of sinful fear. Uh, then then um, there is fear that is rooted, and really all of it is, rooted in unbelief. At least a sinful fear is re- rooted in unbelief that leads to irresponsibility and keeps us from fulfilling the law of love. And so fear ultimately prevents us from loving God and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, then we talked about how society promotes these things, um, many times for economic gain, companies using fear uh, to get you to buy their particular product, Hollywood using fear to lure you to the box office, media outlets using fear to drive up ratings, politicians using fear to garner your vote, uh, to convince you to uh, distrust certain things or people and to place your trust in other, some other thing or other, uh, other person. 
I even heard an advertisement uh, a week or so ago. It's come on several times on the radio, but where the advertisement, it's guys doing consulting for investments, but they say that fear is an emotion. It's not an investment strategy. And so in that case, they're using fear in a different way, but just saying you don't need to think of investing in fear. Don't let fear be the driver in how you invest, but think more soundly about these things. So, again, different people playing off of this, but for their, you know, to promote their, their services or their products. Sometimes attempting to gain con- uh, social control or maintain power, uh, pointing out all the things we ought to be frightened of or consider to be dangerous, and then offering their own solutions to our fears. Uh, we mentioned some of these. It's as simple as building barriers between us and the things that we're scared of. Uh, in some ways, preparing for the worst outcome or maybe flooding our minds with information. And we talked about the challenge of that in our culture of just being inundated with, inf- I say information, not, you don't want to say facts, right? Because, I mean, it's on the Internet. It's got to be true, right? So it's just information. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's a lie. But we are so flooded with those things. That just causes us uh, to really the fear needle to go you know, off the chart um, and in some cases lead us astray because we think we know, like we've got all this information, we must be savvy, right? We must have wisdom because we have all, this, all these facts, but we really don't. And so we, we think we're proficient and, and, and authoritative in these things, and, and we're really not. Um, And then in some cases, government uh, legislating laws or policies meant to make us feel more safe and secure. But in the end, all of these solutions tend to lead to a number of negative consequences. Uh, Some uh, become fatalistic in their outlook. So some of these things just trying to drive us to throw up our hands and say, well, whatever, right? I mean, we're just, again, sometimes so overwhelmed with all the things that are coming at us. But most become, um, again, uptight. People, t- people don't typically just turn it off and say, no, no big deal. People, people typically get really wound up uh, and exhausted, right? Uh, those people we talked about where Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and laid, laden down, right? I mean, weighted down. You got, you got, a, you got a, a boat that's got cargo that's spilling over into the, into the ocean of water because you got too much. You're carrying too much. You're concerned about too much. You're not trusting the Lord enough. So that's typically what happens is people get very uptight. They get exhausted from these things. Uh, they're trying to uncover every threat, every rock, trying to quarantine all those threats, uh, turning inward for, for, their, for, their, for wisdom rather than turning to uh, something outside of themselves, they're looking to themselves for the wisdom they need, seeking control, learning to walk by sight rather than by faith, uh, searching for a quick fix, uh, and searching for an answer that doesn't require us to consider our personal relationship with Christ. And this is kind of where we ended last time, and that is that fear is a personal matter. It's a, it's a relational matter, and it's God and His character and his actions and our status as his redeemed people, that is the ultimate treatment of our fears. So fear is an issue of trust, and it's an issue of relationship. And as believers, we have to guard against making relief the ultimate goal or trying to do things to fear that leave this most important reality out of the discussion. 
the reality that if we know God through repentance and faith in Christ, he is with us and for us. I mean, this ultimately is, is the problem with a lot of the sort of how-to, sort of self-help you know, approach. I mean, you can go to Barnes & Noble and you can find a whole section, right, on dealing with these kinds of problems of fear and panic and anxiety. Um, there's probably one, I don't know, but there usually are these idiot books, you know, about how, how, you know, like handling anxiety for idiots. I'm sure that's a book. I mean, I don't have to, I'm sure that's out there. How to handle fear for idiots kind of thing. It's just a, a simple guide, you know, give it to me in a, in a, in cartoon form, you know, show me the pictures, make it very simple. Uh, the sad thing is you can go to the Christian bookstore and find a very similar section, right? On how to handle these things. And, and it's usually, usually just taking a lot of what you could find at Barnes & Noble, right, <laughs> and then putting a Christian label on it, right? It's kind of take all those self-help techniques and let's call it Christian. But this ultimately is where it falls apart because it's not pointing you to Christ. It's not telling you explicitly and exclusively that the solution to fear is an issue of a relationship with Christ and trust in Him alone, right? So it's more like do these practical, pragmatic things to help you to deal with anxiety and fear. And, oh, yeah, 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 we know you're a Christian. You know, it's like we, we're, we assume that you're a Christian, but, this, but you need this other stuff too rather than realize that you have everything you need in Christ, right? I mean, God's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? I mean, what's outside of your life and godliness, right? Anything else going on today? How many of you have a life today? You have a life today? How many of you are striving for godliness, Right? Well, Scripture says we have everything we need to do that successfully based upon our knowledge of Christ. That's what, first, that's what uh, 2 Peter 1 tells us. So this is the thing that's, that's, that's left out in the discussion as this comes down to your relationship with the Lord. Now, we're not trying to dumb this thing down, make it sound like, oh, you just need to walk with the Lord and everything will be fine. Like you're not going to have any anxiety or fear um, you just need to think more about Jesus, right? Or just some sort of simplistic answer. It's not that. We're, we're going to get into the details of this. Uh, it's simple. I mean, the answer here is simple, folks. But, but it's not simplistic. It's, 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 I mean, people don't just overcome these things in a minute, right? I mean, if they have patterns of anxiety and fear in their life that have been going on for years, even decades, that's not going to change in, in a moment. But the way to change in in time is through a relationship with Christ. And, and that's where, I mean I, Char, I mean, I had a conversation with Charlie just briefly yesterday about just, just this issue, you know, just it's, it's, it's the truth. It's meditating on the truth. It's, it's renewing your mind. I, Christy said something last time we met after class, just talking about well, the greatest lesson she ever learned is just walking in the truth. You got to walk in the truth, right? You can't live by your feelings. Your feelings are not reliable, Feelings are okay, They're, they help us in a lot of ways, and one day, folks, our emotions are going to be fully redeemed, right? Our emotions are going to be totally consistent with the truth, right? That's heaven. That's not here, right? Here, there's the struggle of how to handle our emotions, and sometimes our emotions are consistent with what we know to be true, but sometimes they're unreliable, and we've got to learn to walk by faith. And she was just saying that's the one lesson that just stood, stood with me all these years is just knowing how to discern the difference between those two things, learn what the Word of God teaches, and land there firmly. And, and, and even if you, it doesn't make sense all the time, and even if you don't know, you don't have, know all the details of how this thing's going to play out in time, 
you get it. This is an, it's, it's, a, it's a walk of faith. It's trusting in God and his character and his attributes and his promises and his power to change you. Okay, so that's the, the I think the, the failure in a lot of these other solutions is that, you know, it's not, it's not Christ, it's not Christ-centered. Think about this, Romans 8, 8, 8 uh, verses 31 to 34. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Right? You got, you got promise upon promise upon promise. Right? God has saved you. He has justified you. God is now not your enemy. Right? He is for you. Christ is in your corner. He is your righteousness. You stand in him. Therefore, you do not stand condemned. And not only do you have this standing in Christ, but what about the daily battle? Right? What about the daily battle against sin? Oh, by the way, Christ is at the right hand of God doing what for you as we speak? He is interceding for you. Right? He is interceding for you. He is praying for you. He is, he is asking the Father to com- continue this work of sanctification in your life. What is the Spirit doing right now as we speak? Paul says this earlier in Romans 8. He's also interceding for you, right? At times when you don't even, you don't even know the words to speak. You can't even put it into logical terms. When you go to the Lord and you're so weighed down and you're burdened with all the suffering and affliction in your life and this battle against, against sin and, and, and your own failings and all that stuff, all those weaknesses you have the Spirit of God that is interceding on your behalf. This is the thing that those books aren't telling you, right? All those self-help books are not saying, Christ, Christ, the Spirit, it's the Spirit, it's the Father, it's the Trinity, it's what they've all done for you. They're not causing you to live out of the reality of that. They're saying the answer is in you, right? You've got to get your thoughts together. You've got to think on what is true. And again, some of these things sound good, right? You need to take out those lies and you need to replace it with the truth. The question is, what truth? Right? Where's the truth coming from? And so those, are, again, are some of the, the uh, pitfalls. So never forget this, right? You, you and I don't find peace in common sense guidelines or strategies or breathing techniques or some form of escape. You and I find peace in a person, a person who gave himself for you so that you can have confidence that where he takes you is going to be good. He's taking you somewhere that's going to be good, which brings us hope, right? Uh, An assurance that God is working in our lives for his glory and our growth in Christ. Wayne Mack describes hope this way. He says, hope is a biblically-based expectation of good, right? It's It's not a fanciful expectation of good, and it's not a biblical expectation of bad. It's a biblically based expectation that God is going to do something good in your life as a child of God. But this also means that for a person who isn't saved, any hope they have is a false hope and a temporary bandage because it doesn't sufficiently address the problem of eternity. It doesn't deal with this issue of sin and condemnation and death, right? So here's the, here's the thing. People in the world are trying to get rid of their fear but they can't deal with the one they can't deal deal with the big one 
right? The big elephant in the room, death, right? So they're having to do things to sort of temporarily get themselves through another day. But according to Romans, every man knows they're going to stand accountable to God. And so they're trying to drown that out with all these temporary solutions, but they do not have the answer for that that particular issue. Hebrews 2 says, Christ partook of blood, blood and flesh, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So I'm just saying, you, you go to work, you go to school, you, your neighborhood, you go to the, the pool party or whatever, you're with your unbelieving neighbors, you just have to realize that they are enslaved not only to sin, according to Romans 6, right? They're in bondage to sin. They're also living daily in this enslavement of knowing that they're going to stand before the Lord, right? And they know they've sinned. They may not admit to you they do that, and they may come up with a million and one ways to try to deal with a guilty conscience, but they still live, according to Scripture anyway. I mean, if we believe what this verse says, it's saying these people live in fear of these things. And it's what drives them to pursue the things that they pursue in their lives. So for those who are outside of Christ, they'll never know true peace because death is always right there in front of them. Death is the great equalizer. Or you might say it's the sum of all our fears, the fear of being alone, of being abandoned, and of being condemned. So that's a common thing. You know, interestingly when you do a worldwide study of those top fears, death isn't on that list, usually at the top. In fact, it's usually at least four or five down the list. Uh, consistently, the ones that are at the top are snakes, <laughs> right? Snakes, spiders, and public speaking, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, great. Uh, one of those three I'm having to deal with right now. Okay. So uh, it's interesting because people, you know, they're like, I'm scared to death of this and I'm scared to death of that. And then somehow this death thing is getting pushed back further and further. Why is that? It's not because Hebrews 2 isn't true, right? I think it's just, it, it's just, the, it's just the trend of, of, of society. It's just the trend of a culture that doesn't, they're trying everything they can to, to drown that thing out, right? It's why people don't go to funerals much anymore. It's why the uh, it's why we call living room a living room, right? Because people used to put uh, the, the body in, in the homes and, and then they didn't want to do that anymore because they, I think they, they, we wanted to sort of distance ourselves from the reality of death. And so we stopped bringing the body into the home and having a time of mourning and all that. And we call that room now the living room, right? And so it's like we, we try to do all these things to try to silence that reality, uh, but this is, is the great equalizer. In fact, yeah, it went through just some notable deaths in the last several weeks. Um, just think about this. I mean, death is no respecter of persons, right? We have John McCain, Robin Leach. How many of y'all know Robin Leach? Remember that? Yeah, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. We just, there it goes. Yeah, we, we know who the millennials are, right? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Le- Lurch? Is that is from that Adams family? What is that? The Adams family? No, Leach. Uh, Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, uh, Sh- Charlotte Ray. He, Charlotte Ray, y'all remember her, her Facts of Life? Yeah, Facts of Different Strokes. Uh, Burt Reynolds, I didn't even have to, yeah. I, I could have I, I made this a lot longer. <laughs> uh, what about this guy? Whoa, you know. Billy Ray Eirich, convicted murderer, executed by lethal injection in Tennessee, right? No respecter of persons. 
right? It doesn't matter if you're this philanthropist, this, this person that's, you know, helping people, or if you're a guy that's, that's, that's into rape and murder, right? I mean, it's coming. Death is coming. Uh, Itaya Kasuki. Bet you didn't know about this guy, right? <laughs> Japanese sumo wrestler, right? I mean, all kinds of awards and titles, but he, he faced death in 2018, even in our own church. Pat Page's brother, uncle. Think about this. Her brother and her uncle and her father passed away in eight weeks, six, six, eight weeks, something like that. And her father, you know, he's lived into his 90s. Uh, we had service was yesterday um, up in Canton. And this guy loved the Lord. I mean, served the Lord for over 50 years, married 60, celebrated 65 years of marriage. Uh, you know, I believe he's with the Lord. I mean, that guy's with the Lord. But not all these folks, right? But yet all of them face death. At some point, it's coming. No respecter of persons. Uh, Alexander the Great once found his friend and famous philosopher Diogenes standing alone in a field looking intently at a large pile of bones. And Alexander asked him what he was doing. Diogenes replied, I am searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Right? I mean, it's... And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about, right? Is that if you don't put, you don't fear the Lord and keep His commands, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't worship God, and you worship yourself, and you worship idols and these other things. You're, you may be scattered on the field, and your body's just going to be like everybody else's, right? So we need to be concerned about eternity. Whether we're rich or poor, wise or foolish, death will bring an end to every advantage we have in this life. Even though people go through life desperately trying to deny the reality of their mortality, yet they are haunted by death just the same. So in spite of the fact that some people seem to grow steadily better off, they aren't getting happier because there is this baseline anxiety and fear in their hearts concerning death. Sooner or later, everyone comes to the same shocking realization that one day I'm going to die. My heart is going to beat for its last time. My lungs will exhale one final breath, and then I will face the Creator. Puritan Thomas Watson said this, quote, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset, but eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Right? And, and the thing is, it's, it's, it, this life's brief, folks. I mean, that's the way it's described. It's, it's vanity. It's, uh, it's vapor, right? It's here and gone. And yet, what men do with God in that short time period it affects their, 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 eternal, their eternal condition and state. Then there's the issue of guilty conscience. And for a person who isn't saved, there's no way to sufficiently deal with the problem of guilt because you're not supposed to be at rest when you are at war, are at war with God. Uh, Isaiah 57.20 says this, "...the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet." And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So you have people outside of Christ that are dealing with fear. Not only they got the death thing, right? They try to silence that. They also have this issue of a guilty conscience, which does plague believers too, right? Because believers may have a new heart and a clean record, but they still sin. Right, and we still have to confess our sins. First John one nine, First uh, John one nine, in order that we will walk walking in the light and walking in fellowship with Christ. But 
I mean, Christians can cover sin. They can, they can, they can try to sweep sin under the rug, and when they do, they'll be miserable. I mean, but, they can, but, they'll, but they'll do it sometimes. Try to cover those things up, have a guilty conscience, lose sleep. That fear of exposure and those things leads to other forms and expressions of fear and anxiety. Uh, so a, a guilty conscience and unconfessed sin are often a major source of conflicts, depression, anxiety, psychomat- psychosomatic illnesses, and very, very bizarre behavior. Yet supernatural and durable peace is found in a person. John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, again, this is, this is Christ talking to his disciples during the Passion Week, right? This is right before his betrayal and arrest. I mean, this is, the, this is the comfort he's giving to his own. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So the assumption is the world has a peace to offer, right? So the, the world is offering a form of peace, but he said, no, this, I'm giving you, this is my own peace. It's not like what you would get from the world, So not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So victory over death, we know that is found in a person. Again, back to Romans 8, 38, I'm convinced neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have the death, we have the answer to that. We have the answer to death. And we have the answer to, a, to the issue of conscience, right? Cleansing from guilt is found in a person. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So uh, you, some have said this issue of conscience is, is really a great a way to approach evangelism. If, if you know, put it this way, if you're going to share your faith with someone and you know at the outset that they're dealing with this ultimate fear of death, right, of standing before the Lord, and then in an ongoing way they're dealing with this issue of a guilty conscience, think about, think about how the good news might sound to them. <laughs> it's like, like you're, you're hitting it like right on the bullseye. When you start talking about the blood of Christ who has both overcome death because he's overcome sin and he is the one who brings a renewed heart, a clean record, a clean heart and a, and a clear conscience, right? It's like you, you couldn't bring a more powerful and relevant message to a lost world than to say our Savior has overcome death and can clear your, cleanse your conscience. And so we, we do that in our, in our, in our, in our evangelism and, and, and I'm saying it, it, it emboldens you, I think, in your evangelism to know those things on the front end, right? I mean, to know that even if they, even if they deny it, right? I said, I don't have a guilty conscience. You know, I'm not afraid to die. I just say, yeah, you are. No, I'm not. I know yeah, you are. Just, I mean, I'm just saying they are. <laughs> they don't, they, I, don't, I understand they don't want to tell you that because then you might keep talking, Right? But you just need to tell them that you know for a fact that they fear that, and you know for a fact that they struggle to deal with fear and anxiety because they have a guilty conscience. And then just keep presenting the gospel, right? I mean, if they don't want to, if they don't want to believe it or hear it, that's fine. But don't give in to the idea that they don't have a guilty conscience or that they don't fear death because they do, right? So just start 
like I said, is you have those as presuppositions. Uh, you know, as we ought to have presuppositions as Christians, and that's those are those are two of them as we share our faith. Now, for those of you who are parents, we're bad about this in the way that we help our children with fear. All right, some parents make the mistake of assuring children that something bad or scary won't happen to them. All right, so just talking to the parents here for a minute. Uh, we know you struggle with fear and anxiety. We all do some, to some degree. But then when it comes to our kids, sometimes we, we contradict what we would do or should be doing ourselves. We're trying to help our kids, but we make these promises like, you know, you know honey, you're not going to get sick or you're not going to be abducted or you're not going <laughs> to fail your test. Uh, I've, I've, I've ran, run into uh, moms and dads who are you know, trying to help their, their, their kids gripped with some fear that something's gonna, something bad is going to happen. And one case uh, that I had was uh, they were, the, the child was fearful something bad was going to happen to the parents. Right? So this was really becoming I mean, a, thought, a, a pattern of thoughts, and it was really driving a lot of behavior, uh, different kinds of behavior in their life. And so what the parents decided to do was assure the child every day and every night that nothing is going to happen to us. When you wake up in the morning, we're going to be right here. Okay, now, what happens when something happens? I mean, you start, you start telling your kids, no, the, the, this isn't going to happen. And then something does happen. You talk about rocking that kid's world, especially if they think this is sort of coming down from Christian parents who ought to know what they can and can, cannot promise, right? And so these, the parents are sort of they're overextending this, this assurance and this promise, but then these things happen. And we can't possibly make those kind of promises to children because we don't know the future, uh, and, and we can't prevent things like that from happening. Uh, another common mistake, some parents point a child to the, to the, to the wrong source of ultimate comfort. So th- this concerns the issue of misplaced comfort. So the temptation for children is to find comfort in, in several... Sometimes it's just things. They want to find comfort in things... Uh, you know, a stuffed animal or something, behaviors. They, again, kids that are fearful at night of somebody breaking into the house and they get up and they check, the, they check under their bed and they check the window and they check the, the, the door to make sure it's locked and then they get back in bed, but then 10 minutes later they can't sleep and they guess what do they do? They get back up and they look under their bed and they check the window and they check the door to make sure it's locked. And so they, there's these sort of, you might say, sort of comforting behaviors where eventually the pattern of doing that in, in, in a way kind of, settles them down, uh, or maybe finding comfort in people like their parents or siblings or maybe even their own, own abilities themselves. Some children, in order to deal with their anxiety and fear, retreat to some imaginary place in their minds, so they just kind of tune out and, and, and kind of pra- pra- the practice of kind of daydreaming, like let's just get away from, from what's going on. Other kids may retreat to the computer or texting or media or books or TV, Again, a lot of the kids get lost in video games. This is a major. I don't. Know if, and some of you might be. I might be speaking to some of you, but these, this video game thing is a major thing, and it's not just with like our ten-year-olds and twelve-year-olds and fourteen-year-olds. I mean, this is bleeding over into twenties. People in their late twenties. I've even known you know people that are even older than that, but that this is becoming. This is like a daily part of their routine. And it's just, an, it's just a form, really, it's an it's escapism. I mean, there's pride and there's selfishness and all these other things going on, but it is a, a way to kind of get lost in, 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 you know, when you've got all the 
stress of life going on around you to kind of escape to those types of, of uh, you know, it's called a false refuge, right? Some of these things are just false refuges. Then there are self, self-soothing uh, behaviors like thumb sucking and, and her hanging onto security blankets. And again, I'm not, some of these things are not inherently sinful. They're not inherently wrong. The problem is that they, they, they're not really dealing with the heart of the problem. And in other words, there's nothing wrong with actually some of those things. It's just you've got you to gotta know there's more to it than that. And, and, and children may eventually get to the point where they resist dealing with the real issues because they don't want to give up the things that they've come to like or depend on. Right? So it's like they've become dependent on those things and those people and those, those behaviors, and they really don't want to have a discussion about what's going on in the heart. So the things that have offered them temporary comfort become something that they are holding on to and don't want to let go of. Along those lines, the temptation, I think, for us as parents and adults is to offer kids comfort in us. So as a Christian parent, of course, we want to embody comfort. Um, the, the problem is, is, is it's not that. It's that comfort simply in a parent or an adult that doesn't go any further than that is limited and flawed. And not only that, but our comfort is sometimes inaccessible and prone to disappoint, right? I mean, we're not always able to be right there, right, all the time. So we're sinners too. We don't know everything. We don't always show grace and patience. We, we can't go everywhere that our child goes. And sometimes we can make the mistake of teaching our children to be dependent on us in ways that are idolatrous and unsustainable. But God's comfort is limitless, Right? God's comfort is perfect. He's always accessible. God never disappoints. In fact, David Pallison reminds us, he says, quote, There are places inside a child's head and heart that we will never be able to go, places that only God can reach. Right? I mean, you cannot, I don't care how much you're around your kids and how much you teach them and you try to be there for them and you model these things. I'm just saying there are places in their hearts you can't get there. And there are places in their minds, and you can't get there. In fact, I was uh, we, one of the testimonies for baptism testimonies this week. Um, the, the the young lady was basically saying <laughs> that she had all these years growing up in a Christian home, and that she was struggling with different things. And then when she kind of shared this testimony with her parents of how she was struggling after all these years, the parents just kind of fell apart, like because that's the burden of a parent, right? I mean, like, why did you not tell us? Those things were going on, but I just think it's, it's, it's just the, the propensity, right, of young people to not be honest about those things, right? So, uh, you know, we, we can't get in there, and we've got to constantly push our kids to, to turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord. He knows. He knows. You may not be able to explain it to your mom and I, but he knows, and he understands, and he has, he, he, there's truth that is relevant for your situation, and and he, he is the ultimate refuge. Which brings us to another mistake, I think, on the part of parents. Some parents reinforce a child's desire for relief from fear while failing to focus on that child's relationship with God. So that kind of falls in line with this. Because one of the fundamental issues when we're afraid is to whom or what do you turn? When you're anxious and when you're fearful, to whom or to what do you turn? David wrote Psalm 56 um, and, and, and if you, well, you can turn there, Psalm 56. Uh, and according to the heading in Psalm 56, this is penned by David when he was already on the run from Saul who wanted to kill him. 
So he flees to the city of Gath where the, with, with the sword in hand, which he had used to behead Goliath, which was a risky move considering David was their greatest enemy and he carried Goliath's sword into the giant's hometown. Okay? So we're talking about something a little more, say, on the spectrum of things, a little more serious than most of the fears that you and I will struggle with or even that our kids will struggle with. Okay, I mean, this is real stuff. A guy on the run for his life, and then he's basically walking into, running from Saul, but going into a community where there's a lot of bitterness, probably, and resentment against him when he goes. And so that's the circumstances. And 1 Samuel, you could, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Samuel 21 kind of describes the historical scene here. And so as David feared for his life, uh, and maybe in struggling to, to trust God to deliver him, he feigns insanity, First Samuel 21 tells us, he feigns insanity to persuade Achish, the, the king of Gath, to send him away, which does happen, and David escapes to a cave. He goes to a cave about 10 miles, I think, south, southwest of that town. But this is what David has to say about that incident in Psalm 56. Now, not all the Psalms do this, but it's fascinating to me when the Psalms and it's actually a part of the Hebrew Scriptures. These headings are not like just something we tagged on later. These are, this, is a, this is tied to the text. So when you have this historical background, that's just a, a, a cue. You need to go look at the historical background. I mean, it'll really help you to understand the psalm if you, go, if you can find that. Again, not all of them have that kind of uh, heading, but this one does. And so with all that in, 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 in sort of in motion, this is what David says, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. Psalm 56. Is that right? You guys tracking? Okay, make sure I had the right psalm number. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Think about how many times people are fearful about what other people think or fearful about what other people are saying about them, right? David gets it. He understands. They're distorting. Verse 6, they attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast, the, cast them forth in anger, in anger put, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Right? Now think about what we read in Romans 8. Right? So this is not just New Testament stuff. This is, this is, this is like, these are themes throughout Scripture. So David's saying basically what Paul says in Romans. Right? I mean, this is a key to dealing with temptation and affliction and suffering in your life to know that God is for you. And he says that. This I know. Okay, we're going to come back to this in the next week or two, but just issue of just convictions. Folks, we have got to have biblical convictions if we're ever going to overcome sin. So David has this conviction. I know this. I believe this, that God is for me. In God, verse 10, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Repetition's not always bad, right? It's like, I mean, you need to hear it. Sometimes you got to, again, this isn't, isn't instantaneous. I need to remind myself, 
what can man do to me? I mean, if God is in charge, what can man do? Oh, by the way, I need to say that again. What can man do to me? <laughs> right? As I, sometimes we have to remind ourselves over and over of these things. Verse 12, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So he, he really addresses two things in that. He addresses the ultimate end that we all have to reckon with, right? We have to reckon with the issue of death, but then he mentions this issue of stumbling, which is typically not something we think about at the end. That's what happens when? That's what happens in between, right? Between now and the end, that's the walk. And yet God has not only delivered us from the, the end, right? He saved us from that, but he's also saved us from stumbling, in such a way that we would in any way forfeit that, right? I mean, so the security of knowing that, that God is, is not, hasn't just saved you and forgiven you of your sins, but he is upholding you as a believer and preserving you all through life. So think about this. You just go through this psalm and, and just notice the repetition here. Verse 3, in you... In God, verse 4, in God, verse 9, God is for me, verse 10, in God, verse 11, in God, verse 13, before God. Fear is a personal matter, right? I mean, the, 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 the context here is fear, right? The context here is danger and threats. And where do we turn? To whom do we turn? To what do we turn? Where do we put our trust? And I'm just saying, what David tells us here is not what you're going to find on the self-help bookshelf at the bookstore, right? What he tells us here is that it's in God, it's in God, it's in God. God is for us. It's in Him, it's in Him, so that we would walk before Him. It's all about living our life before the presence of God, right? Knowing that God is with us and that God is for us. So again, just hammering this home. Fear is a personal matter, and so is trust. And God is our only sure refuge. Sometimes we don't point our kids in that direction, right? We encourage them actually to put trust in things and in us and in a future that we cannot guarantee the certainty in detail of what that's going to be like. Instead of saying, you need to go to the Lord. You need to take that fear of the Lord because God knows your end. He knows your days. In fact, He knows your tears, right? He gathers them up, puts them in His bottle. It's like... These are the kind of psalms you take your kids to, or anyone for that matter. You take yourself there. You take your own soul there when you're struggling with these these things. Unfortunately, we don't point them to the gospel. We don't point them to Christ or to anything that is distinctly Christian or biblical. We actually undermine the sufficiency of God and His Word. So we have to be discerning here. I recently listened to a sermon by Richard Burdick. Reverend Richard Burdick, titled Radical Peace. And in that message, Richard laid out 13 characteristics. You don't write, please don't write these down. (laughs) I'm not going to stay here long. 13 characteristics of not just any peace, radical peace. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Radical peace is not the absence of chaos or disturbance, but a deep awareness of God. Radical peace, number two, lives on purpose and not on on accident. So, uh, he talks about being uh, uh, this being a mission-driven experience. Like be per- it needs to be purposeful. Number three, radical peace refuses to play the victim. 
right? Uh, and he, he says this, what if you never told your victim's story again? Imagine what would happen. He says, imagine what would happen if you never told your victim's story again. And you can just hear the room. It's just like, man, you know, like they're feeling it at this point. Number four, radical peace focuses on the task at hand and not on the endless number of other things rolling around your brain. Number five, radical peace views everything as opportunity and not problems. Number six, radical peace is not based on history or future, but on presence, not on being present, but presence itself. He says, radical peace is not so much concerned about what just happened, but how what just happened is a part of my spiritual existence. Number seven, radical peace is not based on your acceptance of me, but on my acceptance of myself. Number eight, radical peace listens first. So you got to be okay with silence, he says. Number nine, radical peace allows life to dance through your fingers and resist any need to hold grasp or, or possess it. Radical peace is less concerned with being right than building connection. Radical peace recognizes drama and takes the first step back. It talks about energies where we don't, when we don't participate, we don't give energy to something, it, it dies. So in other words, we keep a lot of these things going because we put our energy into it. Radical peace gets back up after the fall. Radical peace recognizes that I'm in human skin on an earthly journey and I'm going to mess up. And so there's no need to blame shift or make excuses or cover up my mistakes. Sounds kind of Christian, doesn't it? Sort of. <laughs> Let me tell you what the speaker presented before all of that. Say, so these are the 13 now to keep them in your mind. Okay. Before he puts this up there, let me tell you what his common sense wisdom is. He says, you were born perfect. You were born whole and complete and intrinsically connected to divine energy. You are the veritable presence of God. You are not all that God is, but you are a beautiful part of all of that. You were born a child of God, at peace with God. And you simply need to dip into that well of peace that is intrinsically yours. The problem is you forget that reality and lose your peace. You have to go back within to get it back. It's not what you do. It's just who you are. It's your vibration and your frequency. It's your organic state. You've got to find the radical peace that you are, you are by doing something different. Try a new idea or a new thought or a new experience. You've got to learn to shop for new thoughts and experiences and relationships, ones that bring you peace, not the ones that have been leaving you with anxiety time and time again. By the way, Richard Burdick is the spiritual leader at Unity North Atlanta, a congregation that claims they are, quote, less overtly Christian and more cosmological in their approach, end quote. So we have the culture telling us what to fear and what not to fear, and they propose their own solutions to fear. Then we have the gurus like Richard Burdick, uh, Deepak Chopra, Marty Rossman, Oprah Winfrey. Then there's the entire mental health arena with their specialists. So we have the psychotherapists uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy, which has become the go-to intervention for most mental disorders where a professional counselor helps you to identify negative thoughts uh, and actions or even behind that, your dysfunctional assumptions in life, uh, where you may have to do some homework, you know, in between sessions, such as writing down the thoughts that lead to excess worry or fear, and then replace dysfunctional thoughts with healthier thoughts and learn techniques to calm yourself. 
which closely mirrors a biblical balance of cognitive and action orientation, that balance of thinking and behavior, and therefore appears to be the ideal psychotherapy for the Christian. After all, in one of the clearest passages on human motivation and change, the Apostle Paul instructs believers to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But is cognitive behavioral therapy actually consistent with the Scripture's understanding of motivation and change? And I would say, I don't think so. For one thing, uh, CBT and biblical sanctification have very different starting points and a very different source of authority. They, they, They talk about replacing these assumptions with the truth, but when it comes to what the truth is, we have a very different starting point of where the truth is, right? So we define truth differently. They, they also have very different means and methods. Uh, CBT not, not at all recognizing the importance of the heart as Scripture presents it because they say that things come out of basically habituation and habits that you develop. Well, we don't deny the, the reality of habituation and, and patterns and those kind of things. We're just saying that the way that the Scriptures describe the source of sin is the heart, right? These things come from the heart. They don't really address that from a biblical standpoint. Uh, And then what about the relationship or their relationship with Christ? Think about what Paul says to the church in Rome leading into behavioral instructions. If you want to think about it that way, Paul's about to get into in Romans 12 talking about conduct, behavior, the way you should live your life in very practical ways. But for 11 chapters before that, Paul talks about the mercies of God and the glories of the gospel. Right? It's all about Christ. Right? It's all about you and the fall of man, and it's all about your condemnation and wrath before God, and it's all about Christ and His propitiation for our sins and covering for our sins and new identity and peace with God in chapter 5. It's all those things before you get to, and then this is how you should live, right? And many times these techniques kind of rush to the how-tos, but where's the theological foundation for that, right? Where's the gospel in all of that? You could see the same thing in Colossians, right? I mean, you could go to Colossians 3, verses, really verses, well, I say verse 5 and beyond, with those very practical instructions about how to deal with these struggles of sin in our life. But you've got to remember chapters 1 and 2, and then even at the beginning of chapter 3, about setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated. It's all about that. It's all about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. He's, he's God in the flesh. He's the head of the church. He's the preeminent one. He's all these things. You're complete in Him. I mean, all those things are laid out in Colossians 1 and 2. If you don't have that, then, again, it's just, just in a way, it kind of becomes just pragmatism, right? Just here's how to live your life. But, but we live out of the realities of what God has done for us as believers. And then what about the goal of CBT? Well, it's to make people generally healthy, healthier and more functional. But the problem is this. The therapist and their patient together determine what exactly that is. There's no authority as to what healthy and functional is. And so what happens is the therapist and the person they're counseling get together and they talk about what the goals are. And they kind of formulate that themselves, which means that the goal of the therapy ends up simply being a compilation of the desires of the fallen hearts of these two people and usually centers on happiness, individuality, freedom, or self-interest, certainly not the biblical goal of worshiping Christ and being changed into His image. So we have the culture, we have the gurus, in the world of mental health, by the way, I thought this was good. I saw that shirt. Somebody in public said that shirt on the other day. I had to, and there's yoga. 
I didn't realize dogs could do that. <laughs> we have all these things, but here's the thing, and we'll pick up here next time. Sometimes it's the church that complicates the problem because they embrace some false approach to sanctification or spiritual growth. So they have these Christians or churches have counterfeits for the real thing. Legalism or antinomianism, especially mysticism, right, which tends to separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit from God's revealed word. So in other words, you don't, you don't go to the Word, but you want the spiritual experience. So the Spirit is speaking to me, and I'm interacting with the Holy Spirit, and it's this dynamic thing, but it's not related to the Word of God. So we've sort of divorced those two. That's what mysticism is in, in, in sort of a kernel form. Huge problem in the church today, right? Exaltation of personal experience over truth, exaltation of subjective listening to God over Scripture, Exaltation of emotions over a biblical call to walk by faith and trust in the character and promises of God. Sometimes even incorporating monastic teaching, solitude, and unbiblical forms of meditation, and all that, all that stuff from brought in, sort of grafted in from, near, from, from Eastern mysticism, but brought into a, a, a biblical view and kind of putting the two together. And it's, folks, it's just oil and water. It's just oil and water. We need clarity, Right? We need clarity. We need a clear path forward in this battle against fear. Hang in there. It's coming. Okay? <laughs> We're getting there. It's powerful, and God blesses it because it's His way. He is the source. He defines the means. He defines the methods. He defines the goal, and it's for His glory, and it's for your good. We're going to lay it out. I'm just, I'm just, I feel like these things are important because I just think there's a lot of confusion. I don't want to just like give you the... The, here's the one, two, three, four of how to work through anxiety and fear, and, and you not know the dangers that are there for us and in the church and in Christianity at large and evangelicalism. Because people are saying these things, this is God's will, this is, what, this is sanctification, this is Christian growth, and I'm just telling you that it's not. It's not. I mean, they're going back and pulling in all these things and, and as I said, muddying the waters, and there's a reason why people keep struggling with these things with no victory in their life. They, they try all these methods, and it doesn't work long-term. And then what happens? They, then they just end up more disillusioned, right? Because now they're thinking even more the Spirit is not enough. God is not enough. The Scriptures are not enough. Sanctification, all these promises, it's just not enough. And so it just drives them to the world. It just drives them to leave the church and leave the Word and just go even further away for answers and solutions. We need to be saying, no, that's the, the problem is you've been trying to mix all these things together, that doesn't work. You need to get back to the resources God has given to us, and it's accessible to every believer, right? And you can grow in these areas and have victory, okay? So hang tight. Hang in there. We're getting there. But, again, I think these are, uh, these are important things. And, again, I wish we had more time, but we just we don't want to linger here. You know, we don't want to be here. We don't want to talk about fear at Christmas. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Let's move on from that. Let's, by Christmas time, we need to be in Revelation, right? All right. So amen. I got an amen over here from Sherry. All right, so we'll get through this um, over the next few weeks, and then when we do, again, we'll be back in that, pick up our series again. But thank you for the time, and again, let me encourage you to be a part of our service at 3 today. If, you, if at all possible, you can be there. All right, take care.